Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. We are so blessed this morning to have Bill and Ann Clemmer with us, and uh, you're going to hear about their ministry. This is one of the ministry families that we support. And um, Pastor Dave McMahon, would you please come? Um, Dave has long history with the Clemmers, and I thought it'd be very appropriate for him to introduce them. And at the same time, I just want to plant a seed with you that we are going to take up a special offering for them today. And, and you can participate by making a check out to First Baptist Church and putting Clemmers in the memo portion, and we'll make sure that that gets to the right place. But Pastor Dave? Over 30 years ago, I was privileged to be at a denominational meeting where we were introduced to Bill and Ann Clemmer uh, to be commissioned to the mission field. Medical missionaries, and uh, uh, they, uh, I want you to know, uh, went back, uh, part of the East Coast, and they took their degrees, and they worked in the medical profession, and they paid off every one of their school debts so they could go to the mission field debt-free when nobody forgiven their school debts back then. They uh, serve in uh, one of the most dangerous fields uh, on the face of the globe in the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and uh, they have taken their medical missions, but as well as evangelism to the Congolese and the African people and have served them well. Uh, They are a part of a very small circle in my life of heroes. Heroes. The Clemmers, the Gutierrezes, there were several pastors in India, but I consider these folks genuine heroes. I wouldn't embarrass them for the world, but so grateful. They've been at our uh, National Assembly grounds in Green Lake to be able to spend some time there. After here, they are busting it to Detroit to be able to fly out, and so they have made a pit stop for us and how grateful I am. So Bill and Ann Clemmer, would you come and uh, share with us this morning what's what's on your heart? Click that on. You know, doctors, we don't follow instructions. Hang on. Am I good? Yep. I am. Good morning. Nice to be back here. So, Dave, you did humble us. I'm not sure I'm anybody's hero, but honored and flattered to be here. It's been 27 years since I was at this congregation at a very pivotal time in our young missionary career. Of course, back then, my hair was brown. David, I don't think you had a beard. And Chad, you had hair. But we're still loved in in God's grace. This is our 30th anniversary when we were commissioned as missionaries this very week. And we are so honored and blessed to be here. I don't know if I was told 30 years ago, David, Chad, what these 30 years would be that if we would have proceeded. But thank God he doesn't let us know the end of the story. He just lets us know one day at a time. I was honored to be this morning with the congregation of, I'm going to call them young people because they're younger than I, in the other room. And let me first have a word with them. So 
Calling to missions is a distinct and clear, sometimes hazy, but most of the time persistent calling. Our call to the mission field actually started 42 years ago. My wife and I met in Africa when I graduated from college. I was raised Roman Catholic, and in my faith, um, part of our mandate, part of our religion was if indeed we did good things during our life, God would bless that and we might get to heaven. And so as a young, good, upstanding Catholic graduated from Boston College, I joined the Peace Corps. It was sent to Mali in West Africa where I was to teach high school math and science. And it was during that time in the desert of Mali that I read the Bible for the first time, over and over. One thing about working in the desert is a very quiet place, a lot of free time, no electricity, no internet back then, no devices. And a friend gave me a copy of the Bible, which I read for the first time, though I felt that I was religious, and read that my salvation is predicated not upon what I could do, but upon what Jesus has done for me. And I became a believer in a Muslim country in the middle of the desert. Well, the neat thing is my wife-to-be in, who I had never met, um, came to Africa as well as a young Peace Corps volunteer seeking she had come to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. So there you have it. Two young born-again believers, one from South Carolina, the other from Maine. How often would that happen? Meet in the desert, in the Sahara Desert. I was thinking, if this is what the Christian walk is going to be like, I'm in. And during that time, teaching school, getting to know each other, when we left Africa, I knew two things. One, I really wanted to marry this young woman that I had met in the desert. And two, we just had an unshakable call. I don't know where it came from, to be missionaries. We just, you know, God would wake me up at night, and just, that was our calling. <clears throat> but my favorite chat was that God would ask me to be a, a preacher or a pastor. And, you know, God gives us skills and gifts. And that clearly was not my gift. And so thus came the idea of becoming a medical missionary doctor. And I remember talking to God and saying, if you get me into medical school, I'll come back to Africa as a medical missionary. And we need to be very careful what we tell God we will do. <laughs> so we left Africa. I had to go to South Carolina to ask Ann's parents if I could marry her. We were married during medical school, attended a Southern Baptist church. We had been baptized actually in Africa as new born-again believers. And so um, 10 years of preparation, four years of medical school, three years of residency, a couple of years to pay off our student loans, we were ready to go to the field, technically. But then, you know, I was in my 30s, we had three kids, another one in the way, and I wasn't sure it was really the right time for us to go. I had responsibilities, I had kids. I was a doctor, I was working in a very poor area in northern New Hampshire, and wondered if the Lord wanted me to just hang out in New Hampshire for a while. And so we, it's a long story short, we, we came to this denomination, we prayed about it, and God sent us to Haiti. We were determined that our calling of service was to go to Africa, but the need was in Haiti. Long story short, we went there. It was a wonderful experience, but after two years during, when President Bush was president, during Operation Uphold Democracy, the United States military invaded Haiti, 
to, to basically correct a lot of the regime issues and U.S. citizens were rapidly evacuated. And so after two years of service, uh, early one morning, Ann and I, and now we had four kids, so our youngest was born in Haiti. We were abruptly picked up in a caravan, flown to West Palm Beach in Florida, and dropped off. And that was it. Everything we owned, every, all of my medical books, the kids' books, everything that we had packed up for for 30 years of service, we left in Haiti, and I have never been back. So we're at West Palm Beach. I'd done my two years, and I was thinking, God closed that door. Let's go back to New Hampshire. And that's when I met Pastor Dave. Our mission board knew that we were ambivalent about proceeding. Everything, I mean, we left everything behind. And God brought us to Michigan in 1995, David, to meet with a group of pastors in Ann Arbor. I've never been to Michigan in my life. I'm from Maine. I don't really travel outside of Maine. And Anne's from South Carolina. And we met a group of pastors and shared with them our calling to be missionaries. And that calling was there still. I was brought to this church to share our calling. We still were thinking of bailing. I just have to be honest. We were, you know, got to close that door. And that was my last time here. And shortly after our time here, we received a call from the mission board, and they needed a doctor in Africa. Well, God called us to Africa. And after we prayed about it and thought about it, we took the four kids and boarded a plane, flew from Boston to Zurich and Zurich to Kinshasa and took a little MAF plane to the middle of the Congo, in the middle of nowhere, where we met Dan Miriam Fountain. Do you, you remember the Fountains? Dr. Dan Fountain was a legend, a missionary, a missionary doctor in the, in the Belgian Congo that had been there for years. And as we got to the mission station, this little plane, Dan and Miriam handed us the keys to their house. And they left. And everything that we had lost in Haiti and more was there. All the dance, medical books, kids' books, Christmas decorations. And I am so glad I didn't fret over things that we had lost. Humanly thanks. Lesson number one, I praise God for his patience. But it's also good God doesn't let us know. It was a wonderful time of service. Um, and I haven't been here in 30 years, 27 years, so I can recount. We worked in the Congo for three or four years, and, and there were some challenges, 1999, um, when there was a regime change in the Congo. There were a group of rebels who basically, a short story, they marched from the eastern part of the country all the way to the west to overthrow the president. It took them about two years to do that march. And along the way, they visited, pillaged, loot, and raped mission stations, because that's where you, they're soft targets. And as they marched across the country from east to west, we would follow their progress by shortwave radio, and they shortly about six months later, came near to our hospital, and it was necessary to basically evacuate our nursing students, uh, a lot of our missionary staff, and not the brightest decision, David, but I stayed behind, and the end of the kids went, flew to South Africa. They refused to leave the continent, and I was stuck behind for um, 11 months. And during that time, just trying to keep the hospital open, the rebels came, our hospital went through some difficult times, looted, just, it was a difficult time. And when they left, I was behind rebel lines. This is a recounting, this is my last visit. And for 11 months, uh, my job was to try to keep the hospital open with no fuel, because the rebels had taken that, with no vehicles, with no, very little medicine, a 400-bed hospital without nurses. And I remember very difficult days, long days of frustration and anxiety and long nights going back to my home where the kids used to be. I hadn't seen them, just those tears. But during that process, I learned a lot about depression. 
which I think, in the end, made me a better doctor. We were eventually reunited. I thought it would be good to talk about not our challenges, but how challenges really become opportunities for growth, for ministry. And as I mentioned, we didn't want to dwell upon those challenges, but it has been a walk with the Lord who has kept us safe. 1995, 1997, 2020, we had Ebola viral outbreaks in the Congo. The last one, 2018, sorry, the last one a few years ago, uh, Anne and I now live in Goma on the Congo-Rwanda border, and there was an outbreak about two, two or 300 kilometers north of our home, and I was asked to bring, lead a team of about 40 doctors and nurses to the middle of the hot zone. Well, we had dealt with the virus before. We knew, you know, what it was about. I mean, as you know, long as we could separate those that have had contact from their families and um, take care of the ill the best that we could, these things usually worked their way out. But the one that I was involved in most recently didn't. It lasted for 18 months. And it turned out to be Congo's longest and deadliest Ebola outbreak in history. And it was a time of distrust by the local population on why all these missionary and secular relief workers had come to the middle of nowhere to help deal with Ebola when the population for years and years have been asking for food and health care and relief, and now comes Ebola and all this uh, help. And so during the course of 18 months, uh, two of our African nurses came down with the virus and died. Uh, the population was not very compliant with a lot of our recommendations. We lost healthcare facilities, burned to the ground in treatment centers. And the thing with Ebola, the challenge is when there's not a treatment, the treatment that you need to do is basically try and uh, basically isolate those who have symptoms, those who are positive. So they're not living within their homes and their family and bring them into the Ebola treatment center where then 80% of all people that went into those areas died. So who would be willing to go with a guy like me to the Ebola treatment center knowing what the outbreak was? But what happened halfway through that outbreak is CDC introduced an experimental vaccine for the disease. Actually, Ann and I were amongst the first to have our Ebola vaccine. And then came a treatment. And that outbreak finally, after 18 months, dissipated. And now this great hope for the next one. And I thank God for that opportunity and for that perseverance. 2020, Ann talked this morning about the volcanic eruption that we have just had in eastern Congo where we live. Ann and I live in a town called Goma. As I mentioned, it's on the Congo-Rwanda border. It's at 5,000 feet, and our town is basically surrounded by a ring of volcanoes. It's beautiful as long as the volcanoes are not erupting. Uh, beautiful weather, green mountain gorillas, and 5,000 feet, you know, the weather's in the 70s uh, all year round. And we have loved serving there until the volcano erupted about a year ago. On a Saturday night, we were home, been a long week, and we heard this, this, this noise from, the volcano was about, was about 30 kilometers, 15 miles behind our, our home, and it erupted spontaneously in the middle of the night. Orange plumes of lava, and the mountain that it came for is about 3,000 feet. So when that lava comes down the mountain, it comes down like a rolling freight train. They say that the lava can outrun any uh, person, animal, and uh, it went in 
two different directions. Our house was in the middle, and the lava went to the right and to the left. And by morning, 50,000 people had lost their homes. And about 300,000 people evacuated the city. Well, one thing that we've learned during our course is, you know, evacuation is really, I guess it makes sense if, if, if you've got children, but we just, we felt that God wanted us to stay. Our hospital was spared. And we stayed. Uh, that next day, there was the sword and the, the you know, just the... And, and then on, on day two started the earthquakes. I'm not a volcanologist. I didn't realize that after at that, you know, frequently after the volcano comes the earthquakes. And for seven to ten days, every five to six minutes, our house was shaking, our windows were broken, we had to sleep outside. Uh, our hospital, we basically evacuated. We put all the patients outside because, you know, our hospital and our home are built out of basically cement slabs, and you don't want to be under a cement slab roof in the Congo. <laughs> and, but we were fine. We were determined that God wanted us there until day 10, when the volcanologists, the people that study volcanoes, discovered that large pools of lava had actually gone under the city. And with the earthquakes, as, as, the, as the ground was being cracked and moved, so you started to have plumes of lava, which basically, literally went up in the middle of the town. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I believe it was, and it was 3 in the morning, the governor gave the, um, the order to basically, for the rest of us, to basically evacuate the city. I've never been part of that evacuation, but picture 400,000 people trying to go to the border, which was about a mile and a half away, at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I've never been so, just the, the panic and the mayhem, is as flumes of smoke and... And it was hard for me to keep track of my wife, but imagine how difficult it was for all these dear women with six and seven kids to keep track of their children. And during that 11 hours that it took us to cross this little border, over 2,000 children were separated from their mothers and their fathers and lost. And a month later, when everyone was left in, a lot of those children came back. They never found their parents in tatters and shoeless, and they came back to a city where they could no longer find their home because it was buried or the streets were, were, were off. My wife, Anne, works with 50 Sunday school teachers. David, we have uh, between 800, 850 and 900 children that come every Sunday to Sunday school. I wish you had been there this morning to listen to my wife's story. And these kids couldn't find their home, but they came to Sunday school where the teachers identified them, watched them, clothed them, and brought them to their family. What a cool ministry. And we would have missed that if we had run away. Is there another crisis? Yeah, so my, my current job, when I turned 65, someone felt that I was too old to operate and all, and I do have a degree in public health, and I like public health. I like being able to work with populations and communities to help figure out what is the cause of disease and work with them, water and sanitation and vaccination and malaria. I used to go to bed at night worried about the 20 to 30 patients that I saw during the day. Now I go to bed at night thinking about the 200,000 patients that basically benefit from the work that we're doing. I have such a cool job. But now part of my work is basically filling in gaps, doing training in areas. My most recent assignments have been Sudan, Somalia, where most of the doctors have fled and uh, training nurses how to do work that doctors do. I was in Yemen a few weeks ago, I'm going back on Thursday, assuming we make our flight out of Detroit. 
And you know, it's a little um, not very welcoming to Americans. These are very Islamic countries, especially Yemen. Uh, Yemen is a country basically divided by civil war. It was attacked by the Iranian-based Al-Qaeda rebels in the north, which chased the government to the south, fundamentalist Islamic government. But in the middle of Yemen are over a million refugees, two million actually. And within those camps are over 300,000 children who are at risk of death from starvation. And so this past year I've been spending a lot of time there. And yeah, there are risks, car bombs and kidnapping. My Arab hosts won't even let me go to the outhouse without you know, an escort. But somehow during the process I've learned not to be afraid, to know that the, the most excellent place for us to be in life is in the center of God's will. And I am so thankful for the work that he has given us. I sometimes think of the Apostle Paul. Not that I have a lot in common with Paul. But, you know, Paul liked to travel. I, I, I actually like to travel. I'm, I'm from Maine, where everybody looks and talks like me. And, you know, I get to visit different cultures. Paul liked languages and cultures. And I like being able to get out and meet different people and bear witness to a Lord that, that loves us and... It's a really cool job. But Paul also faced a lot of danger, somewhat more than the little things that I talked about, beaten nearly to death, shipwrecked on an island, ultimately imprisoned in Caesarea and then Rome. And as I read the book of Acts about how Paul dealt with his anxiety and his fear, God spoke to him. God spoke to him one day and said, Paul... <clears throat> You are my chosen instrument to bring the good news to, to the Gentile. The Lord told Paul, Paul, do not be afraid. I am with you. And in Acts 18.10, I love this one. One day Paul came to sort of a crossroads. You know, he wanted to go left. You know, the, the, the road to the right looked a little, bit, a little bit dangerous. And God spoke to him in the middle of the night and said, Paul, I want you to go there. There are many people in that city who belong to me. And I think at the end of the day, that's our call to mission. The Lord said, we have been at that fork many times. In 1995, when we were here, thinking of bailing. Think of everything that I would have missed. How boring. I would have gone back to the state of New Hampshire, been a doctor, and probably retired, had a boat in a cabin on a lake, and I would have been miserable. I would have missed out on everything God had said. And to the young people speaking, the young people that are here this morning in the other room, I would, I would venture to say that the most excellent thing in our life is, is to be able to follow that call. I was reading this morning, uh, Anne and I spent a great night last night at the Holiday Inn Express. Uh, Travis, thank you so much for that reservation. We slept so, so well. And I was reading in the online New Yorker this morning, about a hospice doctor, and she was talking about um, the common sentiments of those people, thousands of people that she cared for prior to death, and they talked about some of their greatest regrets. And the first regret was that they hadn't spent enough time with people that they loved. Well, I'm so thankful that I've been able to spend so much time with the woman that I love. I would never, never ever could have, could have gotten through anything, anything in my career without being with her. So check that box. I have spent all of my time with the one that I love the most. 
Secondly, the woman, uh, Dr. Huspis, said um, they regret working too much and not having enough time to themselves or their children. Well, I, I guess I'm guilty of that. We don't take a lot of vacations. But I like what you said about the third one, and this is to the youth that are listening this, this morning. A lot of these old people, when they were dying, said that they regret that they never took the risk to do what they felt, the, to basically express the passion in what they felt in life they were meant to be. They took the safe road. And the safe road is cool. I mean, it'll make you self-insecure, but I'm so thankful that we listened to God when he said, no, Bill and Ann, go over here. There are people in these cities, many people is what, Paul, is what the Lord said. There are many people in these cities who belong to me. Go that way. So on our 30th anniversary of missionary service, 27th anniversary when we came back from Haiti and with Egan to Bailing, I just wanted to thank you for your prayers and your support. David, uh, Chad, I haven't been here in 27 years. When Ann said, let's go to First Baptist Cadillac, they're big supporters. I'm thinking, hmm, haven't been there in 27 years. They keep giving every month. Why would we go? We're on a roll. <laughs> but I wanted to sincerely thank you, personally, for your love and your support. And I don't know if my wife wants to say a word. Sure she does. <laughs> Ann Clemmer, my best friend, my wife, and so thankful for our time together. Good morning. Um, I could go on forever and talk about the doors that God has opened and the ministries that we've been able to do uh, with women and children in eastern DR Congo. I have to say that I feel like it's not me that's doing much of anything. I just make connections have a passionate group of 50 young people between the ages of 14 and 28 who have a heart for ministry and who have ideas every other week that new things that we should do. And um, so I, I, I do research and make contact and look for ways that we can make those happen from, uh, and also uh, a large group of women uh, widows who have taken in a lot of children. Uh, we have about 850 kids that come to Sunday school every Sunday. And then during the week, our, our program is filled with other activities. Um, but it happens because, first of all, these passionate young people who have a heart for ministry, but also because we have the prayers and support of so many of you in the U.S. Alfred Lord Tennyson said, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And we've seen that in reality, and thank you. I find that very, very inspiring. And um, yeah, how often do we take the safe route? Because that's the one that, humanly speaking, makes the most sense. When all along, God's calling us to something much different, a much riskier but much more blessed. And so thank you very much for that word this morning. And um, and I just want to piggyback just for a moment, too, on um, the words about call 
And just to make that invitation to those in this room and the room next door and those who are watching online, just to say that it may be that someone or several someones feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on your life this morning, calling you to a risky life. It may not be as a medical missionary. It may not be to Africa. But God is calling you to something. And if you feel or sense that tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart, don't resist that. And would you please even seek out some spiritual guidance in regard to that? And, and parents and grandparents and church, far be it from us to try to talk young people out of something that God is calling them to do because we want them to be safe and secure and all of those things. Um, yeah. I don't know why I said that, but I just felt like I needed to say that. So anyway, and again, just to encourage you uh, before you leave today, if you would be so inclined to give to the love offering to the Clemmers today, check the First Baptist Church, Clemmers in the memo, and you can put it in the white offering box. They do have to make a speedy exit, am I right, to get to the airport? And so um, they're not going to have any time, really. To get, I'm, I'm going to probably have Sue kind of escort them out in just a few minutes. Um, in fact, would it be helpful if I had her take you right now? Would that be best? Yeah? Yeah. Sue, could you just kind of see them out? We love you guys. Thank you so much for making time.